Hello, everyone, and welcome to Of Slippers and Spindles. I'm Cassie. And I'm Drew. And life's gotten a little calmer on my end, because my show is done. Yes, I was going to ask, how how is post-show life? Post-show life is always strange. Mm. Um, it's more strange with this show because we never really got all the way to, like, it's showtime because we've got a huge audience and we're going to go out and perform for it and, like, the high energy of that. Um, and we weren't able to do a lot of our usual show rituals. Like, we usually go out to Dairy Queen, but now with the world's on fire, so... Yeah. We couldn't do that anyway, and we couldn't have a cast party. So, like, it just – it kind of feels like the show didn't happen. I know that it happened. I have recordings right. of it. It consumed my life. But it's like I've come home this whole week from work at, like, 5 o'clock and just kind of been home and not had to do anything else, which has been mm-hmm. weird. It's been nice, but it's been strange. Mm-hmm. And it's this weird, like, all of the the pieces of that process didn't happen. And so my brain has kind of like decided that none of it happened. Yeah, I can't even imagine because, you know, for theater kids, the show isn't just the show. The show is this whole experience of bonding with people and going out for cheddars or ice cream after the show and the cast party. Like that is all such a crucial part of the full experience and feeling like, you know, I've had shows where or I've done shows where there wasn't a cast party at the end. And if you're used to that as part of community theater, it's very strange. Like, or, or if there's even if there's a cast party and you can't go for some reason, it feels like, wait, the, the show isn't done. There's no bow on top of this present. I still remember it was so weird. Um, the Velveteen Rabbit cast party oh. way back when. Um, well, I don't remember. Please tell me. Well, and, and there's no reason. Really, too. The reason that I remember it is because I didn't realize until after I'd auditioned for Velveteen Rabbit that the performance weekend was the same weekend as the spring choir concert for the children's course I was in. Oh. And so, like, the Sunday matinee was overlapping with this choir concert, and I was, like, so terrified that I was going to get in such trouble and, like, get kicked out of the children's choir. And I had Aww. to do this whole, like, rigmarole where I got permission to come late to the concert and I got permission to skip strike for Velveteen Rabbit. So we finished the run and I immediately like changed into my choir uniform and got in the car and drove to Ashland from Mansfield and then sang the second half of my choir concert and then came straight to the cast party. But the cast party had already started, so I missed like half of it. Aww. And but and like it was a crazy weekend, but I got to do both things, which was good. And you got to skip strike. And which, I got to skip strike. So hey, we we still had set strike, but for this show, but it was super simple compared to most because my dad mm. is directing the twelve and under production, which goes up in three weeks, and is basically using the exact same setup that we had. So all the stuff that we oh, built and brought in, he's nice. like just leave it there because I'm using it. Um, so we had to take apart a bunk bed, and that was pretty much it. I think set strike took wow. like twenty minutes. Wow, that's awesome! It was. It took more time to collect costumes and <laughs> yeah. and props than it did to actually dismantle the set. So wow, what show is your dad directing? He is directing a show that is an adaptation of Just So Stories. Um, oh, okay. Rudyard Kipling that he actually wrote. Yeah. So oh, that's awesome. That's a great way to get around royalties. Is <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Right, run. He did it in Ashland, I think, before they moved oh. up here. Um, and oh, he's nice. Expanded the script a little bit to incorporate more kids because we have a bigger company here than he was working with in Ashland. In Ashland, he was lucky if he got like ten kids to audition. Um, and up here, we've got a more robust uh, theater community with the children. That's great. It's a bigger town. That's great. So. Yeah. But yeah, so that's, yeah, my life, I'm going to like run out of things to talk about now when we open up the podcasts because. <laughs> yeah, you don't have rehearsals to talk yeah, about anymore. Yeah, I just anymore. got work now. We'll just have to hear about what TV show I'm binging Sounds lately. great. I can talk about yeah. that too. I'm on the good place right now. So. Oh, it's so good. It's one oh, of my favorite TV you're shows. you're telling me. I know. It's a masterpiece. It's so brilliant. Chase and I like literally... Not even, like, before my show had closed, he said we're going to watch the fourth season 
after my show was done. And instead, uh, the day that the live stream didn't work and I came home, I was like, do you know what would make me feel better? Is if we watched The Good Place. (laughs) (laughs) And we binged all of season four in two days. And I'd seen it already. So like I knew it was coming because I watched it as it was airing. But he... I didn't convince him to watch the show until it was done. So we were waiting for season four to get on Netflix. Oh, so, okay, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I just started season four and I started like three days ago. So yeah, uh, I love that show. It's so good. so good. But you know what we're here to talk about today? Not The Good Place and not theater. We are here to talk about Sleeping Beauty, the one who took the really long nap by Wendy That's right. Mass. Yeah. So this is like a, a middle school book it's very short easy read i read it in like a day and a half yeah it's it's not at all long or taxing mentally but this is wendy mass has actually written four books in this series i call it a series because they're all like collected together but they're not intertwined at all so there's no crossover characters but she's done this twice upon a time set up for four fairy tales She's done Sleeping Beauty, Rapunzel, Beauty and the Beast, and she just published one for Robin Hood. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, interesting. Is there... Mild departure. What is the conceit for Twice Upon a Time? Are they all told in these... Because this this book is told through two perspectives, the prince and the princess. Is it the same thing for all four of them? Do you know? Um, is, I that, honestly, is that where Twice Upon a Time comes through? What a great question. I should be able to answer it because I have read at least one other of these, but I don't remember because it was okay. a long time ago. Yeah, this is the only one I've read, so I was just curious. This one was published in like 2006. So these are their older books. And then mm. Robin Hood came out fairly recently within the last few years. But they're all titled that way. So it's Rapunzel, the one with all the hair, Beauty mm. and the Beast, the only one who didn't run away. Mm-hmm. And the the cover image, at least for my copy, is very, like, disconnected to the actual story. Yeah, I have this Because same... it's, like, a very modern yeah, picture it's like, of, like... Yeah, it's this girl in, like, she's wearing, like, a t-shirt. She has a sleeping eye mask over her eyes. She, It's very modern. So I expected that it was going to be a modern retelling. It's not. And it's, it's not, yeah. It's, it's not. I mean, it's, like, vaguely... The fairy tale, medieval style world. There's reference to castles and gowns and stuff, but that's, it's pretty vague. And I think it's interesting because this is not the original cover. The original cover was much more like cartoony Mm -hmm. drawing of princess. But then Wendy Mass got more popular and she's got a really great middle grade fantasy, realistic fantasy series called Love and Birthdays whose covers mm. feel very much like this. And so I feel like uh, that series took off and got really popular. And then when Scholastic like re-released this series to kind of cash in on her larger audience, they redid the covers to feel more like that series so that kids would be more likely to pick it up. Which is a little interesting. publishing industry trick. Yeah. Yeah. Um well let's let's talk about Let's talk about how Wendy Mass adapts Sleeping Beauty. So there's two sections of the story. There's part one and part two. Throughout the whole thing, we alternate chapters between Princess Rose, her point of view, and the point of view of the prince. And Princess Rose is, she exists a hundred years ago, and the prince is kind of the present. And then in the second half, it's after Sleeping Beauty has uh, awakened and... We continue to alternate perspectives, but now they're in the same timeline together. So let's talk about the first part, and we can kind of talk through maybe, do you want to start with Rose or the Prince? Uh, Let's start with Rose. Let's go chronologically. But actually, let's start with the prologue, because this is one of the things I really do like about this book, is that it actually starts with the scene where the Prince wakes up the princess, and her response to being kissed awake is... Excuse me, who are you? And yeah. I said, okay, you know what? That's a good, that's a great question. That's a really good place to start. A very, yeah, a very modern uh, reaction to get from Sleeping Beauty as opposed to like Bernadette Peters waking up and saying, what took you so long? Yeah. Excuse me. Um, Excuse me. Yeah. Who are you? Well, she actually starts with, pardon my rudeness. 
but who the heck are you is actually the line that she <laughs> says, which is it makes me laugh out loud when I read it. Yeah. So yeah, we start with that little that prologue. And then so to start with Rose's story, she explains the the christening part of the Sleeping Beauty story because she was a baby, so she explains it as she's heard it. And this christening scene is very straightforward. It's almost directly from the Perot or Grimm fairy tales where the evil fairy arrives, she's insulted up about not being invited. Princess Rose first has received all of the standard gifts, beauty, grace, musical ability, and then the fairy is further insulted by not getting her golden plate encrusted with emeralds and diamonds, and then uh, she places the curse on Princess Rose. Uh, it's very straightforward, almost directly from the story. And in this version, the parents, it was a legitimate oversight. They didn't. They thought that the fairy was dead because nobody had heard from her. They told her at once, like, well, we had the plate specially commissioned for the event, but we will absolutely get one made for you and sent to you in hindsight. And the fairy's like, nope, not good enough. And then lays the curse. Yeah. And then we kind of, we jump forward. Um, I'm just going to move through this pretty quickly because the story moves pretty quickly. So Rose has a slumber party with all all these girls and she becomes friends with a girl named Sarah who ultimately becomes her lady in waiting around age 11 Rose is performing a concert and at the end of the concert she decides that she wants to discover her true self who she is without her her fairy gifts and so she makes a list of three things that she wants to try to do which are a painting because she can't sew she's interested in the tapestries but she obviously can't sew because no one will let her get near Uh, you know, needles and spindles. So she wants to try to paint, she wants to try to cook, and she wants to try to ride a horse. Anything that I've skipped past so far for you? Well, I think just kind of coming in with the parents are very overprotective. Yes, mother especially. Mother especially, like, they, they know it's supposed to be a spindle, but what if it's anything that can draw blood? And so she's kind of kept mm-hmm. away from all of that sort of stuff. Um, and then she gives a concert, a, like a performance every year to show off these gifts that the fairies gave her. So she yes. can play all the instruments and compose music and she can dance flawlessly. And so she shows off those skills. But it's at this birthday party where she's performing when she kind of has this realization of this She feels empty. Yeah, this isn't me. I don't get any pleasure out of this. And I don't like accepting praise for it because it's just – something that was bestowed upon me. It's not actually a talent that I have. So she really wants to find what she's naturally good at. And so that's why she makes this list of things to try. And so she tries painting and she's horrible at it. Mm -hmm. But she loves that she's horrible at it. Yes. Because it just gives her this sense of pleasure of like, well, I did this and it was me myself doing it. And it's not perfect, but that's okay. And she has the same thing with cooking. She's not a good cook. Uh, Mm -hmm. But she gets pleasure out of trying it. And then like this fairy shows up and is all insulted because she's not using the gifts she was given and she's like poo-pooing on them. And she like the fairy magically fixes the food and like magically Mm -hmm. changes this painting so that it looks wonderful and like sticks it permanently to the library wall so nobody can take it down. Yeah. I like that Rose is frustrated because she, she feels like, why am I not allowed to fail? Why am I not allowed to, you know, learn what it's like to be bad at something and grow from that? So she recognizes this frustration. And I really like this interpretation because I think that this is a really fascinating point of Sleeping Beauty that doesn't get explored as often as I would like it to, which is you have this girl who's been given all of these gifts to be beautiful, to be graceful, to be intelligent. By fairies. And so I think there's that inherent question that she would grow up with of, well, what am I underneath all of that? Like, yeah, is that something that I would have on my own or am I only beautiful because the fairies made me that way? Am I only intelligent because the fairies made it that way? And you're smiling as I say this because you know that I'm fascinated by this idea because well, I've explored it a lot yes, in my current yes. <laughs> fairy tale story that I'm working on. And I'm also smiling because... Uh, the one that I'm working on explores this as well, not to right. get ahead of ourselves for our wrap-up episode, but um, yeah, the the version of Sleeping Beauty, I was really surprised 
as I was reading this, I was like, oh no, she's going to do what I'm going to do. But I, I'm looking at it a little bit differently in a little more depth, I think. But I, I was afraid and excited when I saw that that's what she was she and I was think going it's a really for. fascinating question to ask about your Sleeping Beauty and to have your Sleeping Beauty ask about herself. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, I'd wonder, like, if I'm given intelligence by a fairy, okay, well, am I only smart because magic made me that way? You know, if I hadn't been given this gift, who would I yeah. be without this magic? Yeah. And so I really yeah. like that. Yeah, that's a great question. That determination for self-discovery that she has. Yeah, I like that she asks the question. I don't feel like we get a great answer. I don't either. Because after these two incidents with the painting and the and the cooking, she just has this conversation with her mother where the mother kind of comforts her and says, we love you for who you are. We don't love you because of your gifts. And then Rose is like, you know what? That's great. And I'm happy with that. And then we kind of move on from this question. I feel like... Throughout this book, this is going to be a running theme that Wendy Mass sets up a lot of really great, interesting questions and doesn't Mm. resolve a lot of them in a satisfying way. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's just if she had, you know, because this is a middle grade novel, which means she's going to be held to a certain like length, page number, word count. And so I feel like if she had the freedom of like maybe a thousand more words or 2000 more words, Mm. we could have Mm -hmm. answered some of these questions more fully. We'll talk about that more as we go through the story. But I I feel like that is a running theme, like really good setup and not great payoff in the end for it. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) There's a a big one. There's a big one. There's a big one. We'll get there. So- From here, Rose, on her 15th birthday, she just goes back to performing again. And this time she sees the old fairy that cursed her in the back of the audience uh, turning over an hourglass, which is signifying to her that, you know, the time of the curse is coming. Which is interesting. Uh, It's weird to me that she doesn't tell anyone. I know. I mean, like, I would get that she doesn't want to tell the queen because the queen is super overprotective so i could see a 15 year old maybe keeping that secret but she also doesn't explore the fact that she keeps it a secret she's not like i'm afraid to tell someone because i don't want to send everyone it's just not addressed at all she just doesn't tell anyone doesn't say anything yeah but a year later on her her 16th birthday she and her parents and her friend sarah take this trip to visit their cousins and while they're there she runs into this this woman in the village. Yeah, yeah. They they go swimming and then they go to take a nap. So Sarah, her lady in waiting is napping and so Rose is like not tired, so she just wanders around the estate and happens upon this cottage where this old woman is weaving. And in this like super dramatic scene, yeah. <laughs> she's like trying to spin and her parents like burst in and they're like, no, don't Right as she's pricking her finger. Right as she's pricking her finger. I think that's what happens. Yeah. I yeah. Well, she. That up. Yeah. I mean, she pricks her finger, and I think they burst in after, and then yeah, she they says, "Burst in like right after." She tells them that she loves them, and then she falls asleep. And then she, yeah. And then we get this really interesting chapter about how she's in this cursed sleep, but she's not fully asleep. She's kind of aware of things that are happening Mm -hmm. around her. So she's aware that she gets moved to a different location um, and that she's put in her own bed. Yeah. And then she becomes aware at some point of this presence. There's like a, a boy nearby and she can tell that he's kind, but she can only sense his presence. And then... He goes away, and then later there's another lonely boy whose presence she can feel. Yeah. And that's kind of when we jump back to our prologue scene with the curse being broken. Yeah. But the other half of part one is the prince telling his story. And the prince, his name is just the prince. His mother never got around to naming him. (laughs) That's going to come back. (laughs) Um, His mother, speaking of his mother, his mother is part ogre. So uh, the main 
way that this shows itself. She appears to be human, but she hates beauty. She hates all things that are beautiful. So she banishes all beauty from the palace. The only thing that they can't banish is the painting that you eventually learn is the painting that Rose, uh, you know, painted in the fairy fix. And then the other thing is that on the second and fourth Thursday of every month, she has to, she basically turns into like an ogre werewolf where she like is seeking out human to eat. Yes. And uh, the king did not know this about her when they got married. Of course. Yes. She kept it a secret, but it's made very clear that she's got a little bit of ogre blood, but she's actually, she's a really sweet person. She's really involved in the kingdom and the community. Yes, she's beloved by the people. She's beloved. She just twice a month, you know, just stay away from her. She might eat you. Yes. You know. (laughs) Other than that, we're good. We're good. Um, And so you have the prince who was never named because his parents didn't get around to it. And he asked his father about it once when he's like 10. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I would ask this before I was 10. But I also feel like if I was a parent, I would have named my child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At some point. Um, he asks his father about it. And his father goes, well, you know, we, everyone just called you the prince. That seemed to fit. So we just let that be what your name was. But how about if you pick a name for yourself and you tell us what it is. And then that's what we're <sighs> And so then it's this running theme this for the rest of the book is like, what name should I choose? Maybe it'll be this one. Maybe it'll be this one. And he can't settle on This anything. is, I like this question. I like this setup. I like this idea of someone choosing their own name um, because we've talked about in our Cinderella episodes about how names have power. Names are important for people. Um, so I think this setup is really interesting. And we're going to hang on to that thought because. It'll come back. We'll get there. It'll come back. He is going to name um, himself by the end. He is. But and, – and I also like this idea of the ogre mother because, again, yeah, tying in that element of the pro story, like yeah. nobody does that. Everybody yeah. just like ignores it. But I like that Wendy Mass put it in and found a way to incorporate it into the story and into the conflict of the story. And so part of the issue is his mother – can't stand anything beautiful and so when she brings women in as he gets older and she's like you should consider marrying this one they're all ugly which Mm -hmm. for me got like slightly problematic yeah uh, in in that element because the women who are bringing in he talks about well this one was really old and this one was really fat and i'm not crazy about that association of I agree. Because they're older and because they're not skinny, that means they're not beautiful. That was troubling for me. I didn't love that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very surface level way of telling a story or describing characters. You know, I, I don't think she meant to make the prince seem shallow because of that. But that is, you know, that's what it is. Yeah, it does kind of come across that way. And so that's a a slightly troubling, problematic aspect of this novel. It's not a prominent part of the story. It's just kind of like an afterthought, but it's played off like for humor almost. Yeah. Which is also upsetting. Doesn't make it better. Yeah. Doesn't make it better. Um, But anyway, the prince grows up pretty lonely um, because he, he has to avoid his mother And there's always this, like, distance between them and this question of, you know, does she really love me if she would eat me if I crossed her at the wrong time? Yeah. And and so that question kind of defines him. And there's not really anybody around his own age. Yeah. He has this traumatic event when he's a kid where basically the the mother is chasing him through the woods. Like, he, he just happens to, you know, be wandering on, like, second or fourth Thursday and um, she starts chasing him. And so he's running through the woods and he stumbles upon um, this giant fortress that's covered in vines that looks like it's just part of the forest, but he just happens to to find it. And so then throughout the rest of the story, he keeps going back to visit this, this castle. And eventually he figures out that it's actually an exact replica of his 
castle that he's living in. He manages to see through a window one day and can see that the library is identical down to the painting that is on the wall. Yeah, and so because she's interspersing these two narratives at this point, this reveal is actually done pretty well. Like it's a slow back and forth reveal and you kind of learn the history of what's happening along with the prince because he has heard about this king and queen who were rulers a hundred years ago and something happened with their daughter and their daughter went missing. And that's when the crown actually passed to his family because he's not a direct descendant. It's a a sideways line. Like they brought Mm -hmm. another noble in to rule. And so he's doing all this research, like bringing all the oldest people in the kingdom to come talk to him about like what they know about King... King Bertram and Queen Melinda. and Queen Melinda and their daughter. And so he's hearing all these things. And he's found this castle in the woods and he's like convinced. And he hears this story about how his grandfather was also convinced that there was a castle in the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a princess who needed to be saved. But after a while of trying, he came back and said that he found out he wasn't the right one at the right time. Mm-hmm. And so that's a that's a neat little nod. This idea of it has to be 100 years. Yes. Yeah. And that's the the presence that Rose felt while she was sleeping. The first presence was um, the prince's grandfather. And then the prince then dreams. He has a dream where a fairy appears to him and directs him to a specific book. And so he goes and he finds that book. And in the book is a note from the youngest fairy that altered the curse to be sleeping instead of death. And it's kind of explaining... I saved Princess Rose. And then using like middle grade book logic, the prince kind of pieces everything together. And he's like, oh my gosh, Princess Rose is the the princess that disappeared 100 years ago. And she's asleep in that castle. And my grandfather went to try and find her. And the castle is an exact replica of my castle. Like he just kind of like pieces it all together all in one go. Amazingly. And on the morning of his 16th birthday, he Mm -hmm. goes to the palace in the woods and he's actually able to get through the hedges there's like a little bit of a subplot with this kid named percival who's like followed him and found him and thinks he's gonna rescue the princess yeah but he's like massively unimportant to the actual story um he's a little important to <laughs> he's what a happens little important, but he's a little important to what happens like after yeah uh rose wakes up but The castle opens for him. He's able to go in. He wakes up the princess. And then he's kind of tasked with explaining to her, um, this is what's happened to you. You've been asleep for 100 years. And then we find out that Sarah, her handmaiden, actually asked to be put to sleep with her. Yeah. So everyone else in the palace, like, went and continued their lives. They, you know, lived out. The rest of their lives and they died natural deaths like decades ago. But Sarah asked to be put to sleep alongside Rose so that she could be there with Rose when she woke up. Yeah, the fairy made this replica of the castle because the king and queen, they like begged to be put to sleep as well with um, with Rose. But the fairy said, no, your destiny is to be kind and just rulers. Your destiny is not to to fall into this hundred year sleep with your daughter. So she would not put them to sleep, but she did allow Sarah to sleep with them. Um, so she's the one who created this separate castle, um, which I actually think is a cool element. It's kind of a cool idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, And so he wakes her up and he says, I'm going to, you know, tries to get her to leave. But she can't actually leave the castle. It's like she's trapped mm-hmm. inside a bubble. She can't pass the barrier. He can, but she can't, and Sarah can't, and anybody who was in the palace when it was duplicated can't get past this bubble. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to go figure this out, and I'm going to come back tomorrow, and I'm going to get this all solved for you. But because we have Percival, who is following him mm-hmm. around and who like couldn't get through the briars... He went back and he told the prince's parents what the prince was doing and that he had gone crazy and he thought there was a mysterious hidden castle in the woods and uh, he's become obsessed with this imaginary princess and the king and queen get really worried about him and they're like, this nonsense has to stop. We're putting you on house arrest. You need to start thinking about your future and about being king. 
Yeah. And stop dreaming and wandering around. And we've given you your way in that for too long. Yeah. So he's literally trapped inside, locked inside the castle. Um, He speaks with a falconer who uh, works with him to come up with a plan on how he they can sneak him out. It's very complicated and messy and uh, it doesn't make any sense to me. But, uh, you know. Yeah. If that's there. Uh, but before that happens, the prince is visited by the good fairy and she gives this little prophecy. She says, until both worlds unite in welcome harmony, past and present as one shall not grow to be. So we're, we're working with that now. Um, so then uh, after that, a falcon comes to Princess Rose and Sarah with a letter from the falconer explaining the prince is under house arrest and that he'll come to them that night because they were expecting him earlier. And then the falconer creates this distraction so that the prince can sneak out. But then as the prince is sneaking out, the king and his soldiers like see him anyway. And so they're all following him through the forest to the castle. And so the prince is like banging on the door. Rose lets him in. And then they go and like hide in Rose's favorite hiding spot in the cellar. We have not heard about before this moment. I feel like it's mentioned once. Maybe, like, but Sarah's like, well, we all knew you used to hide down here. And I'm like, did you, though? Because I don't feel like that's been part of the story up until this moment. Yeah, I do feel like it's mentioned, but it's not, like, the significant presence in the story. So they're hiding in the cellar while the king and the soldiers search the castle. And he finally explains to Rose, like, this is the problem. Like, this is why she figures out, he tells her the rhyme, and she figures out that the two castles haven't merged and she can't leave because he doesn't have the blessing of his parents. And his whole thing is, yeah, but here's the deal. My mother is an ogre and she hates beauty and you are the most beautiful person in the world because of this fairy magic that you have. And so she's not going to let me marry you. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that's why I haven't said anything. And also now I'm afraid that I've told you that my mother's an ogre. You're going to be like, peace out. Don't want any part of this nonsense. But she doesn't. She's like, no, we'll figure this out together. And she's like, I can make myself ugly. Look. And she like chops all of her hair off and like rubs dirt all over her face. Yeah. (laughs) Which is not as much of a sacrifice as it sounds because she tells me, she's like, it'll just grow back tomorrow morning. It'll be fine. Um, And then Sarah does the same thing. She (laughs) smears dirt on her face. And then, so they go up out of the cellar and the king and queen just happen to be standing right there. And Rose and the prince explain everything that's happened. And the prince's parents approve of Rose. The queen is totally fine. She totally buys the chopped hair, dirty face look. Then this like wind rushes through and they realize all of a sudden that the castles have merged. And so Rose is going to be able to emerge from the castle and live her life. And yeah. And so then they find in the cellar of oh, the princess like castle this. this box. This is really yeah. sweet. They find this box with a rose on top that is full of letters that Rose's parents wrote to her and Sarah's siblings and family wrote to her like – for them to read when they woke yeah. up. And it that was really sweet. I like, I like that touch too. But again, like we're talking about things that were set up and then like didn't get a payoff. This whole thing with the mother and like she won't approve of you because you're beautiful. And then it didn't end up being a thing at all. And yeah, like if she's going to wake up beautiful the next day. Won't this issue just come up won't tomorrow? Won't this issue just still be there? Like, it, yeah. it didn't really get actually resolved. And, like, you can read into it that maybe she would have been fine with her son having a beautiful wife if it makes him happy because she loves her son. But that's not, like, it's not spilled out that way. Like, you right. have to infer that. Yeah. It's not stated in the novel itself. And I wish that it had been. Like, because I think yeah. that would have been a really solid way to resolve that conflict is for her for the mother to say listen yes i don't like beautiful things but i love you and you love her and so therefore i want you to be happy so this isn't a problem it's something you yes. deal with yeah like, yeah that would have been a really nice moment i think and yeah it's yeah it's not there we're missing it it's not there i want yeah. it to be there but it's not there yeah and so then we have this last lingering question, which is the prince's name. So speaking of things and okay. with payoff, that doesn't satisfy. Okay. So I read this book a few years ago for the first time. And so as I picked it up to reread for this, 
and we got to the bit about he doesn't have a name. I was like, oh, right. He picks a name before the end of the book, but I don't remember what it is. And then I got to the last page and I went, oh, that's why I don't remember what it is. I've blocked it from my memory because it's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. So the prince chooses for his name to be Princess Rose's husband. It's so bad. That's his name. His name is Princess Rose's husband. We were talking about this earlier today, and I said it reminds me of Friends when uh, Phoebe changes her name to Princess Consuela Banana Hammock. (laughs) But (laughs) it's like sincere. That's his real name. That's his actual, like, and and (sighs) I don't know that I'd, like, okay, it's cutesy, whatever, but I feel like. What I want that scene to be is he says, I want my name to be Princess Rose's husband and Rose to go, oh, my gosh, that's so sweet and romantic. Thank you. But seriously, like, what actually are you choosing for your name? Because it's not going to be Yeah. It's – I'm not going to call you that. Like, that's (laughs) – And I don't know that there's a name. Maybe – like, what what name would satisfy this? Like, is there a name – like, you could have – Maybe introduced like a fairy character who he chooses his name after. You could have, um, or I would have even been fine if he said, "Listen, naming is something that's really important. I want you to pick my name." And, oh, like, okay. Had given I that like that. To Rose, like, I want you to choose what name you want me to have. Yeah, I would have been fine with that. Like, whatever she picked. But this, like, or Princess maybe the Rose name of husband. his grandfather, if you yeah, if like, you had set up his grandfather, maybe a little bit more. Yeah, I definitely think that there are ways to have, a, you know, had a satisfactory answer to this question. And the name Princess Rose's husband is not a satisfactory answer to this question. And the worst part is that's the end of the book. Like that's, that's the, like the, it's like, literally last the last page. Yeah, and and. So for me, like, that takes everything that I liked about this story before it happened and just leaves me with a bad taste in my mouth because I read that and went, oh, that's so gross. And then there was, like, nothing for me to hang my hat on after that. Like, that was all I got for the end. And so, like, my last impression of this book, instead of sitting back and going, you know what? That was a fairly solid adaptation of Sleeping Beauty. It addressed a lot of things. It incorporated the ogre. Good job, Wendy Mass. Instead, I'm left going, what? What? Yeah. I, I want to read this last page. So he says, no, it is not going to be Montgomery or Zorro or Quince or any name you've ever heard. I should like my name to be only one thing, Princess Rose's husband. What do you think? Um, and then where this chapter is told from Rose's point of view. So Rose says, uh, I felt a tingle in my toes. Having my parents' letters with us made it feel like they were giving us their blessings. Princess Rose's husband, I repeated, laying my hand on his shoulder and smiling wider than I've ever smiled before. I think it has a lovely ring to it. And just think, you would be the only man in all the realm to have that name. Forever after, he said. Forever after, I agreed. And life was good. Very, very good. What? Her reaction is like that. It it just, I understand that it's for middle school kids, but. But. There's no. There's no realism in this moment. Like, no. if you said my name is going to be, first of all, no one would ever say my name is going to be Princess Rose's husband. And then second of all, her reaction to be like overjoyed with this is bizarre and not realistic. And yeah, and yeah, it's like I agree. It just, it doesn't. It's so befuddling. You also shouldn't define yourself so entirely by another person that that, was gonna be my next point as well is that like it's it's, taking it's erasing his identity like yeah the whole thing with naming is you're supposed to give yourself an identity and his whole thing through the book is that he hasn't had an identity because he didn't get a name yeah and so he's like trying to figure out who he is and in the end instead of like actually answering that question and giving himself an identity he identifies himself by means of another person, which mm-hmm. doesn't still doesn't let him stand on his own. Yeah. And for a story that is so close to being about identity, I wanted more than that. Yeah. It, it just, she, like we said, she sets up some really great questions. She makes some great swings with some, some compelling ideas, but... It just it just misses the mark. And in ways that we didn't expect, 
from our point of view, looking through like the criteria and stuff, I, I do think that she actually answers the questions that we are looking to be answered, but then creates new questions that feel empty. Yeah. And just the end of the book feels rushed. Like the beginning of the book feels mm. really well set up and mm-hmm. explored. And then it felt like she hit a point where it was like, you have to wrap this up in so many, in like X number of pages. Yeah. The first half is is told over the course of both Rose and the prince growing up over 16 years. And I do like that they share a birthday. I think that's cool. Yes. But then the second half happens in the course of literally 24 hours. Yeah. So it's very strange. It is. But let's talk about our criteria since I I brought it up already. So um, our first criteria is to have the characters react to the curse in a way that is believable. The king still says, hey, let's uh, get rid of all the spindles. Mm -hmm. But the queen asks the question, okay, but our people have to have clothes. Right. So – how are you going to deal with that? And he goes, we will make sure that our people are clothed. We will like enter into trade agreements with other kingdoms. Yeah. And that is, she follows through with that through the story. Like they make mention of like bringing clothes in to the kingdom and distributing them. Yes. So yeah. I don't know that it's much more believable, but at least it's like addressing the questions. Yes. I like that Wendy Mass kept the part of the fairy tale where the king wants to get rid of the spindles and then asked the question about, okay, if we do that, then what? I like that she incorporated that. But I don't know. I think it's okay to change that part of the fairy tale if you want to. I think it's okay to change that part too. I did like that the mother was so concerned about, well, what if the curse can be brought on by something else? Mm -hmm. And so she's like really concerned. And when Rose is like really young, she pricks her finger on a thorn and the mother is super Mm -hmm. worried about it and nothing happens. And so like, I, I like, I thought that felt very realistic to me, that concern of like, well, what if it's not just a spindle? And what if it's not her 16th birthday? Like, what if it's something else could bring us on? Yeah. All right, I'm going to move us on to number two. Make the characters more active in their own story and add motivation. What do you think? Yes. Qualified yes. I think they are. They're more active in their story. I think so. Um, Rose for sure is as she's exploring her own identity. The prince is is also active, um, especially in seeking out rose and trying to figure out what's happening with this mysterious castle and all that stuff i just think there's some strange like the whole plot with the falconer feels muddled to me yeah i think things got overcomplicated that didn't need to be overcomplicated and it sacrificed actually giving us a payoff for these things that were set up so beautifully in the beginning yes and there's no payoff with the fairy either the fairy that casts the curse you see her at the christening we do see her again with this hourglass she comes up i think a couple times where rose sees her but then there's no payoff that she never appears again and we have no idea what happens to her so it's like there's a lot of loose ends i feel like Mm. the characters are they are more active in their story for sure in terms of giving them motivation, the first half has motivation for it, but then it doesn't follow through to the conclusion. So I, I wish that more of this motivation through the whole bit had been this search for identity. Yeah. That that had been developed more yeah. as the story went on. Because I feel like that could have been a really good parallel uh, motivation for both Princess Rose and the prince if she'd done more with it in the end. Yes, I feel like the intent was there and that's what they were going for, but it's just a little too subtle. Like they needed to address it just a little more clearly and like you said, carry it through all the way to the end and give us that payoff for both of them. And I think that second half is just too rushed for her to be able to do that. Yeah. And, you know, the idea of the ogre mother comes from the Charles Perrault Sleeping Beauty. And the, that whole storyline involves like the children of 
Sleeping Beauty and the Prince. And I understand that like this is a middle grade novel. We're dealing right. with teenage characters. We don't necessarily need to go there. But I think they could have gone there a little bit more. Like we don't need to have the kids, but maybe have the queen mother involved with Sleeping Beauty a little bit more in order to to fully incorporate that yeah. second half of the story. I kind of wish that instead of them just like happening to follow him into the castle, it had been a more deliberate choice on his end. Mm -hmm. Like he explained everything to Rose. Like he was able to slip out of the castle at night and get back to her and explain the whole situation. And then she convinced him like, hey, go be open with your parents. Like tell them what you want, tell them who you are and like bring them here to see for themselves. And I wish that it had just been more deliberate, like bringing them in to say, this is the princess, this is the situation, and I love her, and I know that you don't like beautiful things, but I'm hoping that da 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 Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Because, again, the end of this, I feel like, falls too much into that feeling we didn't like from the original story of everything kind of happening by coincidence. Yeah. Well, this moves us into our final piece of criteria, which is to give the plot a driving force and higher stakes. Um, so I think that's kind of what you're speaking to is. Yeah, because I feel like the stakes are almost there in the end. And I do like that the prince throughout the story is trying to solve the mystery of this castle. It's not just like, well, this seems like a good thing to do with an afternoon. Right. Like this is a years long endeavor and he goes out and he talks to all these people who might know something about it. And so he's like seeking that information and I like that addition, but I wish that the end had had both of them like more involved in actually standing up for what they want out of life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and putting more on the line than just, well, they accidentally followed me in here, so now they're here and uh, we tricked her into thinking that you're ugly for a day, so I guess that'll be fine forever. <laughs> I just, yeah, I wanted more, I wanted more development from it. Yeah, I agree. Um, And so, like, if I were to posit, what is the way to solve this? I think the, the answer is that this book could probably be twice as long as it is. I think there's enough, enough good ideas in here that it deserves to be explored a little bit more thoroughly. I almost feel like what if what if this book had the tone, feeling, and length of Ella Enchanted by Gail Carson Levine? I think the questions that are being asked in this story are good enough to to warrant a book of that development and size. Yeah, and pay homage to Perot even further by extending the story past mm-hmm. the, the that single day after, mm-hmm. and even past you know meeting the parents. Like, really take the time to explore how does the ogress mother handle her son's bride? Yeah, um, how is that a struggle for both of them to like find a way to cohabitate? You know. Explore that idea more because that's what I'm really interested in. Yeah, yeah, but and I she agree. like starts to go there, but just doesn't 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 have the page yeah space to develop to do it, it fully. Yeah. And I wish that that she had. I wish she'd given this like ten thousand more words. Yeah, I think it deserves it. It's yeah. got yeah, it's got a lot of promise, and it does a lot of things really yeah. well, and it addresses the fairy tale elements that you don't see addressed from this fairy tale. She puts it on the page, and I appreciate that. I love that she used Perot's and, like, fully used Mm -hmm. Perot's. Like, Ogre's mother is there. Like, she worked it in. I've never seen another Sleeping Beauty adaptation that has ever addressed that that storyline. Yeah, I can't think of one. So, huge kudos for that. For sure. I just wish that it had had the opportunity to be more fully developed. Yeah, the truth is that we like it so much that we wish we want more. Yeah. You know, we like the idea so much that that we want more. So, I hope it doesn't feel like we're ripping it to shreds because not, I, I think I honestly we both enjoyed, enjoyed it. most of it. We just yeah, yeah. I think um it's only in this discussion that I've uh, I think I've realized how much I I would have liked to have seen her just 
push the envelope a little bit more. Yeah, but I think it's definitely worth a read, um, especially mm-hmm. if you have in your life, you've got uh, young readers in that like 10 to 13 year old range um, who are interested in fairy tales. I think this book and this whole series is a really good one to hand their way. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's definitely it's worth a read. And it reads fast. Yeah. Um, Cassie, I think I'm going to start introducing myself as Cassie's podcast partner at the beginning of every episode. I accept this. Yes. Cassie and Cassie's podcast partner. You Wait, you've proven me wrong. You had... <laughs> I said no one would ever say that that is a reasonable <laughs> name to accept. And you said, yeah, sounds good. In like Listen. two seconds flat. Drew, if you want to define yourself by my existence, I support you're you. You're okay with this. that? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, you be you be Cassie's podcast partner and I'll be Drew's podcast partner. Okay. That that'll be how we'll go from now on. Yeah, yeah. Then it's uh, then it balances out, right? So, join Cassie's podcast partner and Drew's podcast partner next week for yes. Disney. Disney, we're talking about Sleeping Beauty and Maleficent. We probably won't go into as much detail as we did with Disney Cinderella because there's no sequels. I don't have as many fun park stories with the Sleeping Beauty characters. But we will definitely be looking at Sleeping Beauty and Maleficent. And if I can find it, I am going to Mm -hmm. dig out the notebook from my Sleeping Beauty class because I know that I took hella snarky notes about Disney Sleeping Beauty. Uh, while we watched it for class, and I'm going to see if I can find those. Oh, I can't wait. That sounds fun. It's around fun. here somewhere. All right. Well, if y'all are enjoying these conversations, please take a moment just to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you're listening. If you can, throw us a, a five-star rating and take a moment to leave a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. Join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. Just of slippers and spindles. We're super easy to find. We love having these conversations with you guys. Absolutely. And if anybody else has read this book or the other books in the series, we'd love to mm. hear what you think about them. And Definitely. For sure. And we'll see you next week with our conversation about Disney. See you next week. Mm-hmm.